Good to see you guys today. If you haven't yet, please open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, we are finishing our Why We Exist uh, sermon series this morning, walking through our new Why We Exist statement as a church, looking at three foundational texts that have kind of birthed that statement and given us real purpose uh, and direction as a church family. Uh, beginning next week, we'll be back in the Gospel of Luke up until the season of Advent, or you might call it Christmas, uh, which is only eight weeks away, if you can believe that. You guys are eight weeks away from putting up a Christmas tree. So, uh, I don't know, time feels like it's just running fast and creeping along at the same time. So, uh, but anyways, today we're in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, finishing our Why We Exist statement. And I want to put that for you on the screen again uh, here, just as a reminder. This is our declared purpose as a church, uh, that we exist to glorify God. And we do so in being disciples who make disciples of all people. That's what we're about. And today we're going to see how, how we go about doing that. It's through the transforming power of the gospel. So we've seen this over the last couple of weeks. And here this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, we see how the gospel is transformative, how it's transformative. And we also see that it's the most important reality in this world. It's the most important reality in this world. Paul calls it the thing of first importance. What is the most important thing in your life right now? What's the thing that you look to and say that is the most important reality? Often I, I think of the most important thing is the thing in our lives that everything else rises and falls upon. That if that thing were to fall apart, if it were to fail, everything else would come crumbling and crashing down with it. That's how you kind of know what the thing is of first importance of our lives. It's, 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 it's critical that we understand what that is. And we were told this morning that the most important thing in the Christian life is the gospel. It's the message that Jesus died for sin and walked out of the grave three days later and is a living, healthy, resurrected Savior, King of the universe that that's the reality of life now. And so here's what I hope we will see from our text this morning. This will be on the screen for you, I believe, but what we hope to see this morning is in verses one through two, that it's the thing of most importance because we have an everyday need for the gospel. We have an everyday need for the gospel. In verses three through eight, Paul shows us that the gospel is true. The gospel is true. And then verses nine through 11, we see that the gospel changes our lives. The gospel changes our lives. Let's look here at the beginning, verses one through two, our everyday need for the gospel. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul starts here by saying, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel, as we need to be reminded of the gospel. In other words, it's, it's not something that we, we move beyond. I think we can fall into these seasons of life as Christians where we wrongfully think that the gospel is what non-Christians need. Just merely that's what the gospel is for. It's for people who don't know Christ. But here, we see clearly that the gospel is not just for non-Christians. The, the gospel is completely and utterly essential for believers, too. Paul says that he preached the gospel to them, and they received it. 
in so much as they even stand in it, and they're even being saved by it. I think before we go any further, we need to understand what this word gospel means just so that we're all on the same page with the same understanding as what we're talking about today. But the gospel simply means good news, and it originally wasn't even a Christian word. It's, it's a military word of sorts that was used in battle. And so, you would have one nation battling another nation, and when one nation won, that king would send messengers out throughout the land, and those messengers would declare gospel, good news, the king has won, right? We, we've defeated the enemy in battle. And so, if you lived in a village or a city in that time and a messenger came through and they proclaimed gospel that you were no longer at war but that your nation had won, that would be really good news, right? That would fill you with joy. That would fill you with a sense of peace, right? There's so much that would come with that announcement. And so, just think about it. Paul's talking about gospel here. The gospel then is what? It's an announcement, isn't it? It's telling you something that's already been done, and it cannot be altered, and it cannot be added to. Right? In other words, if, if you ever hear somebody say this, if you ever hear somebody say, the gospel is that we need to blah, 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 or the gospel is us doing blah, 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 you know right away, like, hey, let's just stop. That's not the gospel, right? The gospel in itself doesn't tell you to do anything. It's announcing to you what has already been done. It's, it's news, right? It's something's been done for you, and you nor I actually did it. And guys, this is precisely why Christianity is extremely different than every other belief system in this world, whether it's an ideology belief system, whether it's a religious belief system, because every belief system in this world is telling you what you need to do in order to be accepted. Maybe it's to be accepted in the eyes of the world, or maybe it's to be accepted in the eyes of God, but Christianity declares to you what God has done in order to bring you back into a right relationship with Him. But you see, the, the gospel is only good news if, if you know that you've been in a war, right? If you don't know that there's a, a war kind of for your soul, then the gospel just it falls on a confused heart. So if I said to you this morning, hey, did you guys hear it? Yesterday, we defeated our enemy Idaho in battle, you know? You, you might look at me and say, oh, okay, great, glad we won. I didn't know… I didn't know we were fighting Idaho. That's, that's weird. Is everybody okay? I hope nobody died. I kind of like Idaho. I have vacation there this summer. It seems like a beautiful place, you know. It would, it would fall on a confused heart, wouldn't it? Why? You had no idea we were even at war with Idaho, okay? The same is true when this gospel is declared to us. Guys, if you know that you are in a war, and it's a war for your soul that you are losing and that you can't win in your own strength, if you know that your greatest nemesis is not another person, it's not another nation, it's not even Idaho, but you know that your sinful heart, which naturally chooses to run away from God and ignore Him and can't shake free from our sin, which you've become maybe a place where you hate it, and you know, you know that one day you're going to stare your greatest enemy, death, in the face, and you will forever be separated from your glorious God, but but someone comes and tells you the gospel, 
the announcement that the battle has been won, right? Your enemy has been defeated. The Son of God has lived a perfect life so that He could be the perfect sacrifice, and He died and paid the debt that you owed to God that you could never pay because of your sin, but not with money. He paid with His own lifeblood. And Jesus announced from the cross as He was spilling His blood for you, it is finished. Then He dies, is buried, gets up from death, and says the victory is won. That would be good news. That would be great news. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means that I have received salvation. I didn't achieve it. I receive it. That's why he says what? you've received this gospel that I preach to you. That's what he says. There was a decided moment in your past, this is what he's saying, where you received it, where you believed this. But Paul doesn't stop there, and that's why we must see that our need for the gospel is an everyday kind of need. Because what does he say? He says you've received it, but it's not merely a past tense thing. You didn't leave it behind, which is why he's, he talks about this idea, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That might be confusing to us, but believing in vain then is leaving it behind. It's not holding fast to it, right? So, so he says you, you mustn't know, you, you can't know that you, this is not something you, believe, you leave behind. What? You currently stand in it. You stand in it. In other words, the gospel is not the tunnel that you run through to get onto the playing field of Christianity. The gospel is the tunnel and it is the field. It's, it's the ground beneath your feet. You stand in it. The gospel is the ground. The, the great song that we sing, and we're actually going to sing it today in our response time, is the hymn in Christ alone. And we sing at the end of that first verse, here in the love of Christ I stand. And we sing at the end of the the last line of the entire song, here in the power of Christ I stand. He's the ground beneath our feet. So so what is it that you're standing on then this morning? What is holding you up? Will that ground remain? Will it collapse at some point? Is it sure enough? Is it solid enough? We are told that the gospel is what we stand in as believers. Therefore, I don't move beyond it. I need it every day. But then Paul says, by it, you are being saved. So my only hope of being changed is not anything in me. I actually must realize that my hope of being transformed into looking more and more like Jesus is not due to me just having a great plan or or white-knuckle gripping my own self-righteousness. No, the way that Paul says it here is to hold fast to the word I preach to you, to the gospel. It's it's clinging to the gospel, which looks like me believing it on a moment-by-moment basis. It's me white-knuckle gripping the gospel and not my own self-righteousness. Do you guys see this? Right out of the gate here, Paul's reminding us of the gospel, and he's saying everyone needs it, especially you, right? It's that, uh, it's that idea. Our need is a daily need. But then he goes into this uh, refrain here in 3 through 8 of how the gospel is true. Look at what it says in verse 3 and following. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day 
in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's talking about them dying. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me. So, we see here that Paul didn't make up this message, right? He, it wasn't his best attempt at starting a new religion. He says, I received a message and I delivered the message. So, basically, Paul's saying, I am the mailman for Jesus, right? This is not my idea. And he gets at here one of the clearest places where you and I see in the Bible what the gospel is, right? And there's some implicit things here and some explicit things. First, when you look at verse 3, he says that Christ died for our sins, right? This is at the, the core of the gospel, that Christ died, and that's in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So, Paul is getting very historical on us. He wants believers in Corinth, and he wants you and I to know and remember that this earth-shattering event is not a myth. This is not just an interesting bedtime story. You know, this, this really happened, okay? Jesus lives, and it's not just an idea. I mean, it, it makes me think of being in high school, and um, me and my friends, uh, or I have one friend in particular who loved the band Nirvana, okay? And Kurt Cobain tragically died 27 years ago about, and my friend, once in a while, when he was listening to Nirvana, would say, Kurt Cobain lives. He lives, man. And uh, I'm pretty sure he's not like conspiracy theorists thinking Kurt Cobain's literally alive. We all knew what he meant. He meant that the spirit of Kurt Cobain lives on in his fans, right? We kind of get that idea, okay? Do you think that's what Paul's saying here? The spirit of Jesus lives on in His followers. Is that what it means, that Jesus lives? Well, not at all. He wants us to see that this really happened. It's not philosophy, it's history. So, I love this. Paul, like a really good Westerner, what is he doing here in these verses? He's bringing forth these two pieces of evidence for these claims. He talks about these eyewitnesses in verses 5 through 8 that saw the resurrected Jesus, and he talks about fulfilled prophecy. This is important. Paul's trying to prove and show these people the resurrection really happened. And if we had time, you would see why he's doing it, because later on he's trying to, to show them what, how this matters for their life and their own resurrection. Okay, but he's trying to prove this. So, let's just spend a little bit of time here, because that's what Paul's doing, on these two pieces of evidence. First, the eyewitness accounts, verses 5 through 8, if you want to look here, you'll notice that Paul names a slew of people many of whom he points out are still alive even as he's writing this. And as Oregonians, we are, we're naturally skeptical people, let's be honest, right? Many, many people, at least that I've encountered with over the years as well, we want to try and deny and say certain things like, well, maybe these eyewitnesses were lying, you know, or maybe these eyewitnesses um, you know, or maybe these, these sorts of things that Jesus rose from the dead was added later, you know, after, you know, everybody died to kind of beef up the authority of the church or something like that. But let's, let's look at these things. Paul's addressing some of these things here. So, for someone who might say, well, maybe the eyewitnesses were lying, 
You know, there's a, there was a big group conspiracy, that kind of thing. Well, over the years, you have to ask people this question, as I have, well, what would be their motive of lying about what they said they saw? I've had many people say, well, it's to get people to behave and do what it is that they want them to do. And behind the heart of that, if you continue those kinds of conversations, people will say, well, it's because the apostles and these people, they wanted authority, they wanted power, they wanted influence and prestige in society because that's why you want people to do what you want them to do. You want the power behind it, right? If I have the power, they do what I want them to do, right? This is the whole motivation in their mind, okay? I could could see that. I could see that. We see that a lot in society. But is that what the apostles got? Did they even know or think that they were signing up for this place of power and authority in the world? Well, just read their letters. Not at all. You read First Peter, which the Apostle Peter wrote. He's, he basically says, like Jesus died, we're going to die. And you shouldn't be surprised by that. But hey, don't seek power over your enemies. Be confident that Jesus, like He was raised, you'll be raised one day too. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul who's writing this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, says things like, I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world. We are weak. We're in disrepute. We hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and homeless. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. Does that sound like a group of people seeking earthly power and prestige? Not at all. It sounds like a group of people that really saw and believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Even if someone's going to say something like, well, people die for a lie. Yeah, but people don't die for things that they know is a lie. I love this um, quote from Chuck Colson. It should be on the screen when he's talking about the Watergate scandal. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put into prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me if 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Right? It's extremely challenging to believe that all these people that were eyewitnesses were crafting a lie, then having their lives ruined willingly because of it. We might say, well, these supernatural claims about Jesus, they were just added in later then, right? They were added in later. The real Jesus was kind of a a do-gooder who wore Birkenstocks, he owned Patagonia gear, listened to James Taylor. It was just, it was the power-hungry church that later came along and kind of added these things about him claiming to be God and walking on water to kind of beef up his claims. Well, no, guys, 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest Christian writings dating back to 50 A.D., This is one of the books that no scholar debates was written by Paul in the earliest days. And Paul says that at the time of this writing, there were 500 people, do you see this here, that are still alive who could accommodate it. That's not the kind of thing that you say if it's not true, right? To assume that the apostles lied or that this stuff was just added later, it's not compelling. And Paul is going around and telling people, if you have your doubts that Jesus really rose from the dead, go talk to the people who saw it. You guys, something happened. 
But he also points to fulfilled prophecy. You see that in verses 3 through 4. You see this recurring phrase, according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. The apostles continue to say, don't just take our word for it. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the prophecies that prophesied about the Messiah coming. Biblical scholars tell us that nearly 300 references to 61 specific prophecies of the Messiah were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. 61 specific prophecies that were told the Messiah would fulfill, Jesus fulfilled. Uh, There was a professor of mathematics, Peter Stoner, who gave 600 students a math probability problem that would determine the odds of one person fulfilling not 61 references, but only eight specific prophecies. So just what's the probability of one person fulfilling eight of these prophecies? The students calculated the odds of just one person fulfilling all the conditions of just one prophecy, okay? So they took the example of, um, you know, uh, the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, okay? They just took that one prophecy, okay? Then the students did their best to estimate the odds for all the other eight prophecies combined. And the students calculated that the, the odds against one person fulfilling all eight prophecies were astronomical, the results of just fulfilling eight prophecies was one in ten to the 21st power, okay? If you want what that is, ask Dan Stump or something. I have no idea. But um, to illustrate that number, because people knew, Stoner knew there's people like me that's like, that's probably big, but I don't know. He said, uh, he gave an illustration. He said, basically, first, let's cover the entire earth with silver dollars 125 feet deep, okay? The entire earth with silver dollars 125 feet deep. Okay? Then take one silver dollar, mark it special, in a special way, and just randomly throw it into the pile. And then blindfold one person, have them wander around the earth and randomly pick up a silver dollar, and that is the same probability of just eight prophecies being fulfilled by one person. Okay? Just one. People can do some shady things with numbers. We all know that. So... It's important to realize that the American Scientific Association looked at his work and said, quote, this is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound, and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. This will be on the screen, but Wolfhart Pannenberg said, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. People don't do this every day. But number two, if you believed it, you'd have to change the way that you live. Guys, Paul is not saying that the gospel is about keeping the dream alive or letting Jesus live on in our hearts. He's talking about real resurrection. Something happened that made cowardly people brave. Something happened that made skeptical people believe. Something happened that transformed haters of Jesus into his worshipers. Something happened that gave guilty people hope. Something happened that made mothers and children face death, even in places like lion's dens, and they faced it with joy. Something happened, actually happened 2,000 years ago that changed everything. Jesus rose from the dead. And here we are in 2020, and people all over this world 
who are very different than you. Celebrate that. The gospel is true. Paul wants you to know that. But the gospel also changes lives. Verses 9 through 11 say what? For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believe. The gospel is history, but it's not simply history. It's not something you just intellectually ascribe to, put it in your back pocket, and you kind of take it out when you want to talk about what you believe. In these few simple verses here, we see clearly what the gospel does. It changes lives. It changes lives. Look at the rap sheet that Paul has. He calls himself the least of the apostles, the one that was untimely born. The word literally is a a premature baby, like a preemie. Why does he say that? Because when the news was hitting the streets that Jesus had rose from the dead and there was this movement of this gospel proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected king, Paul was at the forefront of trying to put an end to this movement. He, he was persecuting the church. I mean, you see in places like Acts 7, which I believe this will be on the screen, um, you see the stoning of Stephen. Right? And in that place, Stephen, who's a follower of Christ, he's, he's cast out of the city, and it says they stoned him. And then in verse 58 it says, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. You look down in verse 60, it says, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The same guy who's penning these words is doing that. So the question is, how can you go from that to this? How does that happen? Well, we are told here what it was that can bring about that kind of radical change in someone's life. It's the grace of God. Do you see it? Right? Verse 10, what does he say? The grace of God. His grace. The end of verse 10, the grace of God. Right? It's, his, it's his refrain. This is what the grace of God will do to you. It'll change your life. Right? But it's not just grace in a vacuum. It's not grace in thin air. It's grace of God. It's, it's from God. It's God giving you what you don't deserve, but treating you way better than you would ever dream. It's grace of God. He says in verse 10, but the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. He wants you to know that he works hard by the end of the day. You know, he talks about that in verse 10. He wants you to know that he works hard, but he doesn't change himself. He doesn't attribute that to himself. He, he doesn't lose, you know, he doesn't, he's God's grace that's at work in him. 
Paul was doing all that he could to oppose Jesus and to oppose Jesus' people. And when he encountered the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, he encountered the true God. The God he didn't think was true and the God he didn't think he needed. And so what did he deserve? He deserved God's judgment. What did he receive? It was God's grace. I mean, how, how wide and high and deep are the gracious arms of Jesus, you guys? Right? Do, do you see what this is showing you this morning? I mean, first of all, it's showing you this. If somebody like Paul can come to Christ and be forgiven, then what does that say to you? I mean, yes, you. Like, if you're like, he's not talking to me, I'm, I'm talking to you, okay? I can't look at you all right now at the same time, but yeah, I'm talking to you. What about you, the person who sits there and thinks, I'm too far gone, I've done too much, I don't even know why I'm here, I don't know why I'm watching this, you know? You think of the things that you've done and you feel so guilty about it, things that you've kept secret from maybe everybody in life, right? Maybe you did something this weekend, maybe you are shrouded with some sort of addiction right now, maybe you've had an affair, Maybe, maybe you've had an abortion and you've never told anybody about it. Maybe you yelled at your kids for the thousandth time. Right? What about you? If God's grace is extended towards even those who have killed Christians, then what about you? But number two, do you see the truth that's being presented here? That's that your present can be transformed. Your life can change. There's a question that we all ask in life, and that's, can people really change? Can cruel people ever be made kind? Right? Can selfish people become loving? Can cheating people become honest? Can angry people become gentle? Paul had no doubts the answer to that from his own personal experience. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I was one thing, now I'm something different. And so there's some of you this morning who sit here and you think, man, I will never change. I will never change. You've done something or many things, and now when you look at yourself in the mirror, that's all you see. Your identity is your sin, right? That's how you identify yourself. And so you might think that God's grace is a nice idea, but it's not enough for you. You might believe the gospel can change somebody else, but it, it can never change you. That God's grace is there, but it's for somebody else, but it's, it's not for you. But go back to verse 3. What does it say? Whose sins did Christ die for? What does it say? It says our sins. It doesn't say their sin, and it doesn't just say sin. Right? The cross becomes deeply personal to everyone who sees that no matter the amount of their sin or the grossness of their sin, Jesus' cross was sufficient for them Right, the sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient for yours too, right? There, there is nothing in the Bible that says to you, everyone can come to the foot of the cross and be forgiven except for people who've done blank. That's not in the Bible, right? The, it's grace upon grace, right? His blood was shed and His blood was not animal's blood. It was an average Joe's blood. It was the Son of God's blood, Right? It's grace that changes lives. 
You might be a little discouraged at the slowness of your transformation, but it's inevitable. It's there. It's promised. I'll never forget hearing an interview with um, John Piper years ago, and someone asked uh, John Piper, what is it that makes you doubt the existence of God the most? And he'd even hesitate. He said, the slowness of my own sanctification. I was like, wow, it's a really interesting question and strangely comforting to me. But I think we get that, you know, yeah, why am I still struggling with this? But there, there's a promise in the gospel that you will change, and that'll be by the grace of God. Right? That our frustrations and our slowness should push us into having a greater longing for the things of God, for the things of heaven. Because transformation might not come in our timing, but it does come, and it comes by doing what in verse 2? Holding fast to the gospel, not leaving it behind. And we do that by taking our eyes off of our sin and putting them onto our Savior. We do that by hearing the voice of God say, I forgive you, even when you can't say that to yourself or when someone else won't say that to you. It's by taking your eyes off of your failure and putting them onto Jesus' victory because Paul wasn't somebody who got his act together before he was changed. No, he met the risen Jesus, received his extravagant grace, his root was dead, and Christ made it alive, and transformation began. You will change. That's the promise of the gospel. The king has won. You will change. And that's why Paul says in verse 2 that the gospel is that by which you are being saved. And not only will you change, it means the world will change. So Christians should be the least cynical people on the planet. At least we have reason to be. A couple of years ago, I was driving from Cannon Beach to Portland over the coastal range. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this, uh, but at least when I was doing that route, it says on the right uh, in different spots, this forest was planted in 2016. This was planted in 2006. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen those signs? Yeah. I thought that was really interesting that we're talking about the age of these forests. And, you know, those forests, you'll notice, are much smaller and not as grand as the older, more mature forests, right? I have a strange brain, and I remember driving by just thinking, I wonder if those forests that are smaller and were more recently planted ever look around at the bigger and taller and more beautiful trees and think about their own smallness and they think, I'll never change. I literally thought about this. Maybe I was discouraged that day, I don't know, okay? Trees don't talk or think, right? Unless you live in Middle Earth or something like that. But, but I think we are a lot like those trees. The truth is we know that if those trees are protected, if they are preserved, if they are planted with a healthy root into good soil, we know those trees will grow. In the same way, this is the Christian life. Transformation isn't only possible, it's promised. Not because God is going to make you the me that you've always wanted to be. Because honestly, the me that you wanted to be before Christ is probably not the me you want to be anymore. But God changes us by planting us into the fertile soil of the gospel. And he protects us, preserves us, and grows us until the day that we see Jesus face to face. Right? And he does this because he is transforming a people for himself. 
That's us, Gresham Bible. That's believers all over East County and all over the world. This is what the gospel does. It makes us new people because we have a living Savior. We never move beyond this. This isn't Christianity 101. It's also 201 and 301 and all the way on up. This is what we have received. And if you have not received this this morning, I invite you to come to Christ and put your faith in Him. Maybe, maybe you, you came with someone who is a believer or you're with someone now who is a believer or if you're like, I don't know anybody, you should reach out to me. I invite you to trust in Christ this morning. But again, if you are a believer, we don't go, yes, this is, I'm hoping, glad so-and-so's hearing this or, you know, no, this is for me. Everyone needs the gospel, especially me. This is what we stand in and this is what's going to carry us to the very end. Let's all stand together as we go into a time of response. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Father God, this morning, uh, we're so, so humbled and thankful for your sacrifice and victory on our behalf, Lord Jesus. I know that when it comes to this news, um, often we can grow too familiar with it. But God, I pray this morning that we would see our desperate need for you even in a day like today. And God, that your news would truly be experienced as good news in our hearts. God, may we give you the honor and the praise and the glory and really the whole of our lives. God, you, you, um, you deserve that, Lord. God, we're so thankful for you. We worship you now. God, would you continue to, to change us into the people that you're wanting us to become? And Lord, I pray for those who are discouraged this morning, who uh, maybe are getting confronted with thinking that their sin is too great for you. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to them and minister to them. God, for those who are discouraged, thinking they will never change, I pray that they would find their hope in the fertile soil of your gospel this morning. Father, you love us, and we know that because Christ has died for us. You've demonstrated that love. Help us now to receive that love and to respond to you with lives of worship. In Christ's name I pray.